0: Welcome to the Healthy Matters podcast with Dr. David Hilden, primary care physician and acute care hospitalist at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis, where we cover the latest in health, healthcare, and what matters to you. And now, here's our host, Dr. David Hilden.
1: Hey, everybody. Dr. David Hilden here, and this is episode 14 of the Healthy Matters podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are going to talk about autism. To help me out, I've asked Dr. Krishnan Subramanian. You might remember him from episode one of season two. He is a pediatrician here with me at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis. We're going to talk about all things autism, about what is it, how common is it, and what is life like for people living with autism. Dr. Krish, thanks for being back on the show.
2: Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Hilton, for having me, Um, and and thanks for highlighting some wonderful neighbors of ours, neighbors who have autism and, and the community of incredible
1: people who are doing amazing things. I'm really excited to talk about this very topic, and I love the way you just framed that. Start us off. What is autism? Yeah, so autism is a
2: neurodevelopmental disorder or difference that changes and affects the way people communicate and behave. So digging down on that a little bit, there's a communication piece and a behavior piece. When we think about communication, we think about language. You know, one of the jobs of pediatricians is to monitor development. We're asking, checking in with families about how is your baby communicating. And at the earliest ages, that's about how are they making sounds or looking at you. And then as they get older, it becomes how are they communicating with words or language uh, or in other ways. Uh, one of the things uh, when it comes to autism is that there are differences in the way that children communicate. They do a little bit different back and forth communication. Right now, you and I are having a conversation and we're going back and forth. Some kids with autism don't do that quite as much. They don't go back and forth with communication. They have differences in the way they communicate with nonverbal communication, um, we oftentimes use our eyes and our smiles and to to convey emotions. In autism, children and, and adults frequently won't do that. Also, we note that uh, there's a difference in understanding of relationships. So. Kids with autism or, or adults with autism may do a little bit less imaginative play. They may have some differences in the way they make friends and, and the way they communicate with those friends. So that those are all sorts of, sort of the communication pieces we think of. And that's only half of it. That's half of it. So you you know when we talk about diagnosing autism, we we tend to see those symptoms. And then there's another few behavioral symptoms that we'll see in young people who have autism. So there may be some repetitive behaviors. Kids and adults may focus on certain behaviors that they want to repeat over and over again. It may be certain motions, certain objects and things that they like to play with and do. Additionally, there may be a highly regimented behavior. So some kids or adults may really want things in a certain way. They want things lined up in a certain way. They want their room to look a certain way. And that is one symptom we think of when it comes to the behaviors. Also, some kids and adults who have autism may have very specific interests. So a certain type of animal or a certain type of object or vehicle, cars, trains, that they really like. And that is a type of repetitive behavior that we see uh, in folks with autism. And And then finally, very importantly, is people with autism may have differences in the way they have sensation. They may be very sensitive or differently sensitive to touch, to certain tastes, to certain textures. And so when you put this together, autism represents a difference in the way people communicate and behave that can sometimes get in the way of the way they're able to communicate with others.
1: So you used a couple of words I'm going to go back to. You used, it might be a disorder or might maybe more accurately be reflected as a difference. Is it a disorder
2: at all? So right now we diagnose autism with something called the DSM-5. It's a diagnostic and statistical manual. And it asks, do you see these criteria in a young person? And in particular, a couple caveats uh, on that diagnosis. Uh, we should see some of those symptoms at an early age. We should also see some uh, effect on their daily life to call it autism spectral disorder. Mm-hmm. So that that may be the key difference is that does it have – some effect on their daily, w- daily life and the way that people engage in that daily life. I think a lot of the things we just talked about, Dr. Hilden, whether it's differences in the way we communicate, liking things a certain way, having different sensations, are things that you might see in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think it's when you collect mm-hmm. them and then when it begins to have some effect on folks' daily lives, that's when you can call it a, a disorder. But uh, there is a, there's a large spectrum. There's a large spectrum, and uh, it is uh, encompassing of a lot of people and a lot of uh, different ways that autism may manifest.
1: So you use the word the spectrum, and many of us have heard this term before. Um, in fact, maybe some of us even use it in our daily lives. So, oh, he or she's uh, on the spectrum, maybe without really knowing what we're talking about. First of all, is that an accepted term? And second of all, what do we mean by that?
2: Yeah, I I hope that the term autism spectrum is seen as an encompassing term to represent really the beautiful diversity of people who have autism, and frankly, the beautiful diversity of people who who live in our community, because we just talked about uh, a variety of symptoms. We talked about some communication symptoms. We talked about some behavioral symptoms, and the truth is every single person with autism. The millions of people in our country who have autism have a slightly different version of that. Um, Some may have differences in the way they communicate with language. Some may have uh, certain strong preferences around sensation. Some may have strong uh, preferences in the way things are laid out. So you
1: can't just say, here's what it always looks like in every person.
2: And every single one of our neighbors with autism has a slightly different variation of that. And that is representative, I think, of the spectrum. But then I also think there's an element of the spectrum that, that represents some people with autism have very little effect on their daily lives. It affects their daily lives, but but not in a way where they need significant levels of services from other people to get through daily life. Whereas there are other neighbors who have autism who really need a lot of support to do their daily functioning and daily life activities. And so I think that is another level of the spectrum, is that there are various levels of, of intensity of services. And so I hope the term uh, spectrum allows us to see that every individual with autism is different, has different needs, and, and really one of our responsibilities as providers— as community members and as neighbors is to get to know every individual and find out what are the ways that we can support that individual
1: yeah, that is so powerful with the way you frame that i really really like that, but do we know what 's happening in the brain for people with autism and i guess that 's another way of saying, do we know what causes this yeah so let 's start with the
2: brain and then i 'll turn into like yeah. what what causes um, you know there 's some very large scale evidence from from brain imaging to suggest that there might be some some consistent patterns, uh, so maybe people with with autism have slightly smaller hippocampuses, slightly enlarged amygdalas, different parts of the neuroanatomy that are are slightly different over over the large scale. One thing that 's really interesting is seeing that they 're using MRI now to map connectivity of pathways, which is just beautiful science and beautiful imaging, and you can see the way that different parts of the brain connect with each other. One of the things uh, that is seen is people with autism actually have very individualized idiosyncratic patterns. So they have maybe very strong visual pathways or very, maybe very strong connections between visual pathways and language. So they may have very unique strengths within their brain pathways that are really really strong, and that's it's, it's a cool thing to see that our neighbors with autism have have some incredible unique strengths that are visualized in the brain. You can
1: actually see them on advanced imaging like an MRI. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's there's a there's a professor out of Colorado State named Temple Grandin. She has autism and uh, speaks. She she. Studies animal sciences, but she speaks a lot about living with autism and, and what, what we can do to help our neighbors with autism. And she talks about how her, she, her visual cortex has been uh, mapped out, and you can see in the imaging—it's just so much bigger than, wow. frankly, yours or you know, yours or <laughs> mine, David. Um, but it's, it's a remarkable thing. But you know, Dr. Grandin also talks about how. That these strengthened pathways, in whatever way they are, are, are the seeds of some incredible things in our community. You know, we she talks about uh, a, a young Albert Einstein. You know, and a young Albert Einstein didn't talk till he was the age of three. Mm. He liked his blocks in a certain way and lined them up in a very certain way. Would he have been diagnosed with autism? Very likely. You know, very, very
1: likely. And, and is um, now what people call the genius. If you think of a genius, you think of Einstein. A- absolutely. The, the prototype of a genius. The and, prototype. And,
2: and what does that mean? It means that sometimes these symptoms that we just talked about, this 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 focus on certain things, this interest in certain things, uh, it can sometimes be the seeds of the things that change the world.
1: Absolutely. So what causes it? So
2: uh, maybe it's easier to tackle, Dr. Hilden. What does not what cause does not What cause does it. not cause autism? Um, I think there's been a lot of talk about autism over the last thirty years, and one of those talks has been, "Oh, is it vaccine-related?" I think one thing we can say, with as much proof as there is under
1: the sun, as certain as we can possibly be uh, about
2: anything that uh, vaccines don't cause autism. And, and I and I want to make that as straightforward as possible. I
1: appreciate you
2: laying that out. There. <laughs> so so vaccines don't cause autism, and and I also think we oftentimes run. And I know parents often think about what did what what am I doing? What did I yeah. do? Is it uh, no? We, we know it's not something that parents are are consuming or doing. You know, this is not about it's not about parents. We think and we know that there are uh, there's a genetic component to autism. The challenge with that, Dr. Hilton, is that there's over 100 different genes that have some connection peripherally or more strongly to autism. And so to try to synthesize that it's – it's a difficult thing because there's. It is so multifactorial.
1: I love your message, though. It's not what you did, folks. You know, parents, you didn't do this. No, your vaccine didn't do it, and nothing you did. You don't. This isn't something you're responsible for. It's nothing you personally did. Uh,
2: no, and, and you know, we we also know that there's a there is a genetic component because we see that in we do see it in families. So we will see, for example, in in siblings, there's a higher. Preponderance or concordance in in twins of a sibling having autism and then uh, you know their sibling having autism. Right. Um, so so we know that there is a genetic component. We know that there's some um, some correlation, though the science isn't great about paternal and maternal age, the older we get as we have children, can have some correlation. But the truth is, Dr. Hilden, I I think here here we see 100 genes. We see brain connectivity in certain spots. I I think if we have young scientists and researchers out there who really want to push the boundaries of knowledge, I I think, one, learning the brain— generally is, is the new frontier and is the frontier of where we're science is going. But I think autism in particular is another space that we have a lot to learn and how you uncouple these 100 genes.
1: When we come back, we're going to talk about diagnosis and then we're going to talk about living with autism. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break.
0: You're listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. Got a question or comment for the doc? Email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org. Or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. That's 612-873-8255. And now let's get back to more healthy conversation.
1: You you used the word earlier that millions of Americans have this. So how common is it?
2: Yeah, right now they're saying, uh, as of this year, one in 34 children. Are, are diagnosed. So we're talking countrywide. About two percent of Americans have uh, autism or on the autism spectrum. Is that on the rise?
1: On the fall? Is it the same?
2: If you had asked me this question in two thousand, Dr. Hilden, mm-hmm. we
1: would say one in hundred and fifty
2: so, uh, Americans. So I
1: would, I would conclude it's on the rise. Is that wrong?
2: You would, you would be accurate that the number of diagnosed people on the autism spectrum is on the rise. Now, was it? That we were mm-hmm. underdiagnosing? Did we not recognize? Uh, I think that's a huge piece of it. That and seems I, like
1: it's enormous that we simply weren't identifying it as much.
2: And this is a relatively young field, Dr. Hilden. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't until 1940 that the first sort of description of 11 kids with some vari- variation in communication uh, was described. And then. You know, it wasn't until the 1970s, 80s, till you got a little bit more discussion on that, started to to recognize. And the amount of education we've done to providers, the community has been enormous. And I think that's a huge reason we're starting to identify uh, more folks with some of these symptoms, you know, landing on the autism spectrum. I think it's also part and parcel, and I know we're going to talk about this, of we're recognizing more and more, and, and this is part of the research advent, it's part of the clinical advent, is that, we need to make early diagnosis to help folks along their path, right? We need to make the diagnosis in order to get them services and the kinds of therapies that, that will benefit them for the rest of their lives. And so I think we as providers are learning a lot. Our diagnosis is getting better the community knows a lot more, and so I think all those things have have seen a shift from one in 150 to
1: one in 34. Is it more common in certain people? Are at some groups more at risk? Are boys or girls more at risk? Mm-hmm. Talk about that if you could, please.
2: Yeah, so so you know, we talked a little bit about how f- families—if you have a, a member of your family uh, and a sibling. A uh, parent with with autism, then that is is a risk. Uh, we know that it is more commonly diagnosed in boys, four times as much diagnosed in boys. So it's it's a pretty big dis- disparity in our diagnosis. We don't have a great reason for that exactly, but I think it does beg the question of Are we diagnosing it well and consistently? And it's something we need to be thinking about a lot. The population rates are very comparable across the world. That's just looked at a map that mapped out by color, you know, know, shading color on the map, the rates of autism. It was a uniform map for the most part because it was just about the same no matter where you went. There's some slight variation. France has the lowest diagnostic rate and Qatar has the highest in the world. However, it is not a huge disparity when you compare it to to other types of illnesses and the disparities. And if you look at in the United States, if you look at uh, autism rates by race and ethnicity, Remarkable, and I have it here with me, David. I want to hear. 2.1%, 2.2%, 2.2%, 2.3%, and that's across Across different racial racial groups. groups. So, so it is the
1: same. Uh, remarkably Almost so. identically the same across racial groups.
2: It, it, it's remarkably similar. and, and that, That's that, shocking that, to me. It, it is. It's, it's, it's a surprise. Now, I will say, I, I think if we l- were looking at diagnoses, um, yeah. we know that our data suggests that we are slower to make the diagnosis in African-American and people of color. So it's it's a disparity that we need to address and we need to get better at it. And that, that's partly outreach. It's partly our conversation conversations and and making sure we're doing a good job of, of screening and diagnosing. How is it diagnosed? There's a few ways that we approach this conversation. One, and it's always so welcome, and one of the things I want to encourage every family out there is, one, talk to your kid, play with your kid, sing to your kid, uh, have have a lot of conversations with them, and then check in with the CDT, check in with your pediatrician about what are the kinds of things that we would expect a child at any given age to do. And this starts from birth, two months, four months, nine months, all the way through. And just, is my child doing the things that I would kind of expect? And parents don't always know that. Absolutely not and then there's some really great apps. There's some really great websites. And then please use your providers as a, as a resource to find out oh, what should my kid be doing approximately at this age? And there's always variation. I want to make that very clear. But at any point, if you have concerns that your child is maybe not doing what you would think, Bring that up because that is always a very welcome way to begin a conversation. How do we make this this diagnosis? First, I want to make it clear that pediatricians and, and family docs at 18 months and two years will always do a screening. We'll ask a bunch of questions about development and it'll give us a sense of are there some symptoms that might fall along the autism spectrum. And you do
1: that with all kids.
2: We do that with every kid. And, and so one of the great things about screening tools is that we use it with every child and uh, we, we get a sense of it there's any clues there. And if there are clues, we'll do some further testing, further questions, And we'll make referrals to some of our colleagues who do deeper testing and deeper analysis to determine whether these communication and behavioral symptoms really are existing.
1: Now, is that a neurologist, or are there people who specialize specifically in autism spectrum? We we are blessed
2: with some incredible colleagues, and they follow along a couple different avenues and professional venues. So we do have some pediatric neurologists who 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 will do this, but uh, more commonly we have incredible psychologists in our in our community, Uh, clinical psychologists, pediatric psychologists who. Will sit down and do incredible conversations and evaluations with with young people, determining whether they have some of these symptoms. There are there are standardized scales that they'll use, uh, standardized conversations and tests that they'll do with kids and and determine whether they fit this criteria for for autism. But one thing too, David, you don't need to wait for a screen, right? Like uh, we as pediatricians will do the screen and we'll do it at eighteen and twenty four months. But at any point, if a parent feels a question or a concern, we can always get that referral made to our psychology colleagues, to our neurology colleagues. Uh, We have developmental pediatricians who who specialize in this space, and they are awesome. They're wonderful. It's a fun appointment in many ways because it's a really nice play event. And we can get you to those folks uh, if you have any
1: concerns. So that that's the message to parents. If you if you have questions about your child, ask your pediatrician.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether we call it autism spectral disorder, a speech delay, a difference in behavior. If we can get kids more therapy, more practice with conversations and socializations. And, and the
1: sooner the better. And
2: the sooner the better. Frankly, the label doesn't matter. And... It matters that we are helping the young people do more
1: and practice more and, and helping parents to help their kid. I'd like to shift the, the rest of our conversation about living with autism.
2: So first thing I want to acknowledge is that I think anytime you give a kid a diagnosis of anything, it's a, it's a shock and it's a woe. It's a woe moment for any, any parent. We as pediatricians, we as a community are there to walk, walk beside families. Um, th- there are some incredible resources out there. There's organizations that are supporting families with autism. So there, there's Frazier, there's St. David, there's a number of uh, Minnesota Autism Center. There's a lot of great organizations right here in our community that are supporting. What I what I think it represents, what does it mean when you, uh, you know, what does life look like? So first and foremost, I think at an early age, it means we're going to get you the extra support. We're going to get you the extra therapy. We're going to do the extra practice. Minnesota and frankly our early child infrastructure is is really exceptional right away we make we make a referral to speech therapy the kinds of therapies that will support a child with autism various modalities of therapy that that help kids learn a lot of the skills we're talking about uh, but we also have the school districts. You know, We will refer to the school district who will provide extra therapies and extra support for kids in that first three years and beyond all the way through their educational career. So I think one of the key elements uh, for I would encourage all parents to think about is if you get that diagnosis, living with autism means finding the resources that are going to be supportive and relying on the professionals around you to help you get to those resources. So that's the, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing I'll say David is the spectrum is huge and for each individual thereafter it's going to be it's going to be variable. Some kids will need some minor supports in their classroom setting, some kids will need the the socialization and friend groups that come from a community, and other kids may need significant support. And that spectrum can be so broad as we as we talked about earlier, and so that will look very different for each family. but I think having a navigator, having a someone who will walk alongside you becomes crucial.
1: What about things like uh social relationships mm-hmm. as children and then into teenage years yeah. you know where relationships are difficult for all teenagers yeah. how do how do young adults, teenagers manage that? Yep. So
2: it is through various modalities of therapy. It's a lot of what um, our our pediatric therapists will work on with Mm. kids is how do we – make friends? How do we take turns? How do we do the elements that are going to make us successful in a classroom setting? I think one of the things I think about um, our pediatric therapists do an incredible job of helping our kids with making adaptations to be successful in their world, right? I think they do an incredible long job. Long into at,
1: adulthood. Then. Long
2: into adulthood. But one of the things that I think we as providers, one of the things that I think we as a community and, and as organizations can do is help the community understand and adapt and make places more welcoming, more um,
1: absolutely amenable,
2: more more friendly and and more honoring of our neighbors with autism. And, and so I think it's a it's a simultaneous process of of supporting our kids, but also supporting our communities to to learn.
1: To be a little bit more welcoming, not all spaces were designed intentionally or otherwise for people living with autism, perhaps. So to wrap it up, it sounds to me, Krish, that um, the world is changing with regard to autism, that there are more resources, there are, there's more awareness, at least, of autism. At least I hope so. What thoughts would you leave us, both for people living with autism and for the communities, about what the future should look like with regard to people living with autism?
2: yeah I, I think we we don't know uh, what what will happen next with our kids, right? None of us do. But from an early age, talk to them, sing to them, play with them, love them, love them, love them, and then use the resources around you to help uh, guide next steps. Yeah, I'm so excited that the community is beginning to realize that that the autism spectrum is is wide it it's broad and it represents so many of our neighbors with so many different talents and and i think what i would hope is that we begin to recognize that everyone uh with autism everyone on the spectrum has incredible talents, incredible gifts, and that while they're working hard, uh, all of our neighbors with autism are working hard to learn skills, uh, we as a community should be working equally as hard to appreciate the incredible folks that, that surround us.
1: I will take that to heart. I think that's probably my number one take-home message from this conversation with you, Krish, is that the community um, needs to do its part, and it's a privilege to to do so. What a great conversation today with Dr. Christian Subramanian here from the Department of Pediatrics at Hennepin Healthcare. I have learned a whole bunch. I hope you have as well. If you like what you heard, please share the podcast with your friends. Leave us a review, and I certainly hope you'll join us for the next episode. It's going to be a great one. And in the meantime, be healthy, be well, and don't forget to wear your sunscreen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. To find out more about the Healthy Matters Podcast or browse the archive, visit healthymatters.org. Got a question or a comment for the show? Email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or call 612-873-TALK. There's also a link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and share the show with others. The Healthy Matters podcast is made possible by Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota and engineered and produced by John Lucas at Highball. Executive producers are Jonathan Comito and Christine Hill. Please remember, we can only give general medical advice during this program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your physician if you have a more serious or pressing health concern. Until next time, be healthy and be well.